Amen. Thank you, Paul. Well, friends, good morning. I'm Robbie, one of the teaching pastors here. If you would, turn in your copies of Scripture with me to John chapter 19. We continue our studies in the Gospel of John, this Easter series. We're in John chapter 19, verse 16, the second half of verse 16 to verse 37. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. So they took Jesus. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, to see, to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his sister-mother, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true." And he knows that he is telling the truth, that you, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the word of the Lord. Well, friends, our key truth this morning is this. By his death upon the cross, Jesus bears witness to the truth that our salvation is complete in him. By his death upon the cross, Jesus bears witness to the truth that our salvation is complete in him. 
I have a question for you as we ponder these things. The question is, when you meet someone for the first time, what do you typically tell them about yourself? What's the typical spiel that you give to someone that you've met for the first time? And maybe thinking about that, what about close friends? What do you guard as critically important for someone to know about you, to know about your story in order to consider them a close friend? We all have aspects of our personality and our stories and just the way that they're wired that people need to know about if they're to know who we are and what makes us tick. Well, well, friends, I think I know how Jesus would answer that question. He's already told us in Revelation. When Jesus appears to John in the book of Revelation to give his messages to the churches that have already been established in his name, he says, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. The cross is absolutely central to Jesus' self-understanding. The first thing he wants you to know when you meet him for the first time is that he died, and he rose to new life. We could also think about Revelation 5. In Revelation 5, John sees the scroll of history, all that is to be unfolded in history, from the creation of Adam and Eve to the very end of time, and it's sealed. And he begins to weep because he realized no one is worthy to unseal the scroll of history, to make it all work out for good, except one who is found, the lamb who was slain. And all the heavenly host, in response to this glorious revelation, that there is one who is able to unfold history, to make it all right, the lamb who was slain, the response to this is, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. The cross is absolutely central to Jesus' self-understanding. Now, we don't hold to the centrality of the cross. The reason why there's a cross on our bulletins at Christ Community Church, we don't hold to the centrality of the cross merely because of its honored status in Christian tradition, but because of its redemptive significance according to Jesus. After all, how could we read this passage of Scripture? How could we read of all the sufferings of Jesus on the cross for us and our response to that merely to say, well, tell me about the traditions of men? That'd be madness. It is perhaps the case that we sometimes disbelieve that our salvation is really completed at the foot of the cross. Do, do we sometimes struggle with the sneaking suspicion that there must be, after all, more to our salvation than that? More to life and joy and peace and truth and sanctification? I fear sometimes we do think that. But the centrality of the cross and Jesus' witness testifies to this fact. Our salvation really is complete in hymns. Dear friends, it cannot fail to escape your notice that all the New Testament teaching, all the things that are written in the New Testament, all the letters of Paul and all the epistles and all the gospels always take us back to this foot of the cross. Everything that we are taught in the New Testament takes us back to the foot of the cross, which is why Paul can say to the Colossians, I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. And that's true also of the, New, the Old Testament as well. The, the thing that distinguishes us, that separates us from our Jewish and Muslim friends, the two great other Abrahamic religions, is that we see in all of its pages Jesus. 
is preparing us in some way or another to meet with Jesus at the foot of the cross, the one who said before Abraham was, I am. So the centrality of the cross and Jesus' witness testifies to the, to the fact that our salvation really is complete in him. See it in the text. See where they took Jesus to crucify him. Jesus was taken out and crucified at the place of the skull, Golgotha. It's a desolate, it's a forbidding place. The entrance to hell itself, if there ever was one. Perhaps you've been to places where the very air seemed evil. Certainly you and I at times have been in places that seemed dark and unfamiliar, and we were very glad to get out of them, very glad to notice the friend beside us. It is such a place that they took Jesus to, a place that we could say even was the refuse of the world, a cursed place, Golgotha. Even the name of it sounds forbidding. And there they crucified him. I, I, it's funny to say I love the way that John puts this, but I think there's so much majesty in the way that John gives this account of Jesus' death on the cross. There they crucified him. There they crucified him. No more than that, they crucified him. There's a sense of majesty here, isn't there? Of all the horror of what happened to Jesus, there's still a sense of majesty in his willingness to go to the cross for his people. And there they crucified him. There's deliberateness here. Yes, he's in the place of the skull, Golgotha, the place that is desolate and forbidding. But he is there because he is submitting to the will of his Father for the life of his people. But oh, crucifixion is a horrific form of death, probably the most diabolical form of death ever devised by humankind, an agonizing, painful death, deliberately designed to delay death until the maximum amount of torture could be inflicted. The feet were oftentimes nailed sideways to the cross so that the victim laid upon the cross would be at a 90-degree angle, which would prohibit easy breathing, and so that the lungs would begin to fill with moisture and the heart was seriously affected, but you could lay like that for days. And it was symbolic to the Romans of deep shame. They would not crucify their own citizens. That was for barbarians. That was for foreigners, people who were non-entities, not Romans. And to the Jews, it was a sign of God's curse. Because they'd read in Deuteronomy, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And they didn't make a distinction between trees that were just out there in the wild and the trees that we made by our own hands on the cross. Everyone who hung like that was cursed by God, a non-entity. If anybody, could, we could say of them, well, there's no hope for them. God has turned away his face from them. They could say that of one who was hung on a tree, which is why Paul would say, God made Jesus to be a curse for us because it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. It's a death of abandonment and alienation from God and mankind. How cruel to be treated as Jesus was in a world that he had made. In a, in a world that he had made for his own glory. How cruel to be treated as he was. But friends, outside of Christ, we are under the... Haven't we experienced it this week in the form of death? Three... Children, nine-year-olds, killed. The world is groaning under a curse. Don't you think that this week and in the weeks ahead, the halls of Covenant School will feel like Golgotha to the students and parents and teachers? 
Where's the thing that's going to bring light and life to them? The only thing is the power of the cross, where Jesus went to the place of the skull because he has triumphed through the cross and makes all things new. But we still struggle under this curse. We struggle under the curse of sickness. We struggle under the curse of our bodies, not acting like they ought to anymore. We struggle under the curse of trauma and the things that we carry in our hearts and souls that affect us so much. We struggle under the curse of relational trauma. We struggle under the curse of forgetfulness and worry and anxieties. We struggle under the curse of difficulty and knowing what to do. We struggle most amazingly under the, and most horrifically under the curse of alienation from God and enmity with him. The world as we know it is under a curse. And oftentimes the answer of the world is that you have to just reconcile yourself to the curse. Either you have to get really comfortable with it and just so that it doesn't bother you anymore, or you have to figure out how you're going to live with it. But you have to reconcile yourself to this curse in one way or another in the world's reckoning. But the answer of the cross is that God reconciles himself to us by overcoming the curse through the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. That's the glorious paradox of the cross. Jesus here was transforming the universe. Transforming the universe. Dear friends, oftentimes I think we can approach this story, especially if we've gone familiar with it. We've heard it so many times. We begin to become desensitized to the glory of what was happening here. And you can't but help but notice, we'll get to this in a minute, but even Jesus' own family. Mary's there, but Jesus had brothers who were not. How often have you, like me, thought in your heart, if only I could have been there. There's an old hymn, if only I could have been there at the foot of the cross. How majestic that would have been. Yes, it would have been so heartbreaking to see my Savior killed, but oh, what wonders that would have done for my sanctification to see him there. But Jesus' own family, his own brothers, just back in Capernaum, just a normal day for them. We can grow so desensitized to the cross, and it's tragic when we do, but in this we see Jesus was transforming the entire universe, all the curse that we labor under, all the difficulty we feel in life, all the sadness and the heartbreak that affects us so much, Jesus was transforming that and overcoming it. God was in Jesus Christ reconciling himself to the world. Oh, the glorious paradox of the cross. So we do not ever, not for one moment, turn our eyes away from Christ or his cross. Not for one moment. Oh, it is a malicious invention of Satan. Whenever he tries to convince us that we get to a point in our lives and we can turn away from the cross, not give it any of our attention. John had to confront this many years later. In his epistle, his third epistle, he said this, I, I love it, do not ever go away from Jesus. Do not ever get to a point like you sometimes do with your friends where you, you're kind of going along with them and maybe you're doing some window shopping and you notice your shoe is untied, so you say, go on ahead, I'll catch up with you. John says, never do that to Jesus. Never say to Jesus, well, Jesus, you know, I pretty much got it here. Let me take a break. I'll, I'll figure this stuff out. I'll catch up with you. Never do that to Jesus. We do not ever for one moment dare to look away from his cross. Because John said in John 3 to Nicodemus, who didn't get it, much like we often don't get it, he said, Nicodemus, just like Moses in the wilderness, had to hold up that bronze serpent when God visited judgment upon the people of Israel for their false worship, 
and sent serpents among the camp. And they, the serpents began to bite many of them, and they began to die. And Moses held up that bronze serpent, and God said, whoever merely looks at the bronze serpent will be healed and saved. And in just that way, the Son of Man must be lifted up so that whoever looks upon him will be The whole story of his conversion, but I do know this, he was saved by hearing this text preached. He wandered into an old country church, and the pastor wasn't there, so a deacon got up, and he opened his Bible to that passage in John 3, and he said, friends, I don't know how to preach. I don't know what to say, but I do know this. You don't have to be very educated to look at something. All you got to do is look. <laughs> you don't have to have your life together to look at something. You just got to look. You can be the most rotten sinner in this room. All you got to do is look. So friends, we do not ever turn our eyes away from Jesus or his cross. And whenever we are encouraged to do so, we know straight away, whenever someone says to us, well, you know, it's, tr it's the tradition in the church to veil the cross, we do not go with that. We never turn our, our, our eyes away from Jesus. The key to life is not in the things of this world, whether they are new or whether they are old, but in Christ alone. At the end of time, when the Lamb of God comes in judgment, he will come as the Lamb who was slain. And everyone who refused to look upon him, everyone who refused to have his blood cover them, will be judged. The Chinese have a saying, and they say, the Communist Party would probably not persecute us so much if our difference with them was mainly political. If they were convinced that we were just anti-communist, they'd probably be a whole lot nicer to us. The Communist Party in China persecutes us because they cannot abide us saying that it is the worst thing in the world to prevent people from hearing the gospel. That's what gets their hackles up. They'd be a whole lot nicer to us if we were just, well, this government should be overthrown, this regime is unjust. They'd be like, yeah, that's annoying, but you know what? But what really gets them angry is the suggestion that there's salvation in Jesus. And so, friends, we ourselves must never, must never encourage people to turn away from Jesus. And oh, how tragic it is when our witness is filled with so many things that distract people from Jesus and his cross. How tragic when what the world hears from us, Christians, is not Jesus and him crucified, but something else, some other program, some other philosophy, some other technique for living. Friends, we dare not turn our eyes away from Jesus. Pilate wrote an inscription and put it over the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. And it was written in Aramaic and in Latin and in Greek. Pilate did that probably to really emphasize, we are Romans and this is what happens to people who have pretensions to kingdom. But he did it also knowing, or not knowing, as much as he was communicating, because this was a message for the whole world to read. Jesus is of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And the chief priests, out of pride, they wanted the inscription modified. They wanted Pilate to say, well, no, he's not really the king of the Jews, just say he said he was the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. Now, I don't know all that was going through Pilate's mind when he said this, but I suspect that partly he was filled with contempt. Contempt at what he had done, contempt at his own heart, contempt for the Jewish authorities that he probably felt had put him in this impossible situation. And he was filled with a sense that 
justice had to be done in some way or another. Jesus had to be recognized as something less than this rebel that they crucified him to be. There's something here, Pilate seems to be saying. He's the king of the Jews. But, oh, friends, see in this, see in the response of the chief priests, that thing that we always say, the antithesis to faith is not doubt, it's pride. Pride is always the great antithesis to faith. Pride is a challenge to us in many ways, and the cross challenges them, challenges them, challenges them, <laughs> it challenges them all. We see in the cross that Jesus comes to meet us in our hour of need. We see in the cross that Jesus comes to meet us right where we are. But so often we're looking for something that is greater than the cross. So often we're looking for something that is more transcendent. Something that is able to fill our hearts with more, just a more powerful sense of God's nearness to us. Which is why when we come to think about worship, so many of us say, well, if only there was a greater sense of transcendence. If only I felt God more imminently here. Some of us wish, well, if only we dimmed the lights a little bit, then I'd feel God really more closely. Some of us wish, oh, if only we sung more ancient you know, hymns in a certain key, then I'd feel God more greatly. But friends, don't we see in this passage, in the suffering of Jesus, that at the cross, transcendence and imminence meet? At the foot of the cross, we see Jesus as he really is, the glorious one. And we see Jesus as he really is, the one who is imminently with us. We often, as people, we so often want to see glorious things, but don't we see the most glorious thing of all in Jesus' suffering for his people at the foot of the cross? The soldiers, they divided Jesus' garments. Now, they could not have known when they were doing this that they were fulfilling Scripture. They were fulfilling Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. But, oh, they were. And, oh, what a wonderful book the Bible is for us that it tells us these things that we get to see, as it were, behind the curtain. We get to see God at work orchestrating these things for the salvation of his people. There's more going on in their dividing Jesus' garments. We're meant to see here that Jesus is stripped naked on the cross. Friends, when Adam and Eve in the garden sinned, their eyes were opened and they realized their shame. And the first thing in their shame they realized was that they were naked, and they hid from God. And oh, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and all the rest, but it didn't work. And God in great mercy came to them and clothed them. Throughout history, throughout Israel's history, there'll be various events in which people become unclothed symbolically, and it's symbolic of their refusal at many times to recognize their shame, that they can't stand before God with innocence anymore. But Jesus comes and he's stripped, and his garments are taken from him and divided among those who crucified him to bear our nakedness and to bear our shame so that we could be clothed with his righteousness. The soldiers, they did not know what they were doing. They did not understand the significance of these things, but Jesus was on the cross reconciling himself to the world and uncovering himself to reveal the shame that was laid upon him so that we could be clothed with the righteousness of Christ. But contrast the attitude of the soldiers with the women standing at the foot of the cross. I, I love this episode, and I almost wish we could just spend the remainder of our time on these few verses. It's so beautiful what happens here. It's so beautiful that the last earthly business on Jesus' mind was the welfare of his mom. 
It's so beautiful that all the things that he was going through, the agony of the cross, the horrifyingness of that crucifixion, the weight of the world's sin upon his shoulders, and yet he still is concerned about the welfare of his mom. We don't know all that Mary went through in those moments, but I'm sure we can imagine just how horrifying that was for her, her firstborn son. And all throughout his earthly ministry, being utterly confused. Of course, she supports him like any good mom would, but what is he doing? At one point in Matthew chapter 12, she's coming to where he's meeting and saying, come out to me, come speak to me. And he has that strange response, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Everyone who does the will of God. That must have been awfully confusing. But here she is at the foot of the cross, probably weeping, probably just so numb with the horror of it. And Jesus looks down upon her and says, Behold your son. And says to John, Behold your mother. There's an old saying we're all familiar with it, blood is thicker than water. And the whole idea there is that, you know, family ties, they ought to mean something, right? They ought to be thicker than water. But dear friends, love in the spirit is thicker even than blood. It's a wonderful thing here, what John, or sorry, what Jesus does for his mother through the ministry of John. Because in giving the beloved disciple the privilege of now caring for his earthly mother, what he says is that in his kingdom, love in the Spirit is thicker even than blood. Church there, feeling as you know we all do when we're in a foreign place and the culture is very different, just totally out of my skin, just uncomfortable in my own skin, and just feeling like I really wanted to be home. But you know, the best place for me to go was Sunday morning in church at worship, even though I really didn't understand what was going on because everybody was speaking in French. <laughs> but you know, it was like I was home because I could see these people love Jesus. And I experienced love in the Spirit. It's thicker even than blood. That's what Jesus does for his mother here in these verses. It is sad, I have to say sometimes, because we've experienced it sometimes. It is sad when we see this go wrong in the church, and some of us have experienced that. We've experienced that this love and the spirit that we so long for and that Jesus promises, us, promises to us can sometimes go very wrong. But when it does, oh, dear friends, think of Jesus and think of his mother. And think about how the last piece of earthly business of his life was to care for her. Jesus will be there for you too. He has not forgotten you. That's a beautiful episode. Let's think of it often. Well, Jesus, after saying these things, proclaims that everything is now finished. Jesus, knowing all that, was, that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. This is in stark contrast to the soldiers who divide his clothes. They don't know what is going on. But Jesus, from first to last, knows what is going on. And from first to last, he is deliberate about everything that he does. Jesus is on the cross with the explicit purpose of fulfilling Scripture. That is what Jesus is doing here. Don't ever for a minute, minute, minute think that Jesus is buffeted by the events that are happening to him. He is not. Jesus is first, from last, first to last. He is taking control of this situation for the salvation of his people. And so Jesus says to fulfill Scripture deliberately, I thirst. And so a jar full of sour wine standing by the cross was lifted up to him. And when he had received that sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head 
and he gave up his spirit. Another way to translate that is he dismissed his spirit. In other words, he said, okay, it's time to go. It's done. Jesus was not killed by events. Yes, his heart was having difficulty breathing. His lungs were filling with moisture, but that is not what killed him. Jesus himself dismissed his spirit. And he did not dismiss his spirit a second before Satan was defeated. Satan, with all of his malice, Satan, with all of his accusations against God's people, Jesus made sure he was defeated. And when he was, he said, it's done. It's time to go. And he dismissed his spirit. And friends, that means that you and I can die safely. What do I mean by die safely? Well, I know I've told this story before, but I think about it so often I just can't help but to tell it to you again. I heard it from John Stott. John Stott was visiting an older member of his congregation many years ago, and she had difficulty seeing. She couldn't really see without her glasses, or specs as she called them. And she said usually it wasn't really a problem, but you know, when she was out about town, sometimes it was difficult because she wanted to cross the street and she couldn't really see very well. Well, usually people were kind and helped her, but she preferred to cross by the traffic light because she said, whenever I cross on the traffic light, I can see the words in green when it's safe to go. And the words in green say, cross now. And whenever I see those words in green, cross now, I walk over courageously. And then her eyes lit up, and she said, you know, when I am dying, Jesus will come to me, and he will say, cross now, and I won't be afraid. Friends, that's what it means to die safely. You and I can cross now and not have to be afraid because our sins have been blotted out. Because Jesus, not even for one minute before Satan was defeated, died. And when Satan was defeated, he dismissed his spirit. So our sins are blotted out, and there is nothing left for us to fear. So that when we die, Jesus will come to each and every single one of us, and he will say, cross now, and we don't have to be afraid. He's gone to prepare a place for us, so that where he is, we might be with him also. And he's coming to fetch us. So dear friends, we see this also in the cry of dereliction, which is not recorded for us in these verses. But we know that Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus say that? So that we would know that on the cross, Jesus was bearing the curse that was ours by right, so that we would never have to face it. Jesus was uncovered and made naked so that we could be clothed with his righteousness forever and never have it taken away from us. Yes, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. Friends, this is a beautiful passage of Scripture. Oftentimes I feel, I I have felt in the past, somewhat a a bit of trepidation in the Easter series, because I knew how good it was going to be on Easter Sunday, but all those weeks leading up to it, oh man, it's such a bummer, you know, because who wants to hear about death and dying in the crucifixion? But friends, this is a beautiful thing, because we see here that our salvation really is complete in Jesus. We have nothing more to fear, God the Father now looks upon us with the most amazing love. I have often prayed to myself each and every Sunday, especially during this series, Lord, help me to see the people of Christ Community Church as you see them, with all of your love. But you know, I'm worried that Jesus may actually one day answer that prayer, and then I'll get up here, and I don't don't think I'll be able to say anything. I think I'll just cry. (laughs) Uh, To see you as he really sees you, 
with love. To, to see his desire as it really is for you, to clothe you with his own righteousness so that you can share in his blessings forever and never have that taken away from you. So dear friends, is your boast in the cross? It was for Paul. Paul said, I will boast of nothing except the cross. Is your confidence in the cross? Perhaps you feel this morning very far from salvation. But this passage teaches us that we get to say that there is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul said he was the chief of sinners. So if there was hope for him, there's hope for you too. There never was a sinner turned away from Jesus. Never in all of history. Jesus never said to anyone who came to him, go away from me. And there will be nobody in hell who will be able to say to Jesus, I asked you for mercy and you said no. No one will be able to say that. No, Jesus gives as a king to a king. He gives freely, without limit, to everyone who asks him. Oh, how Jesus loves you. Won't you come to him? And oh, what a thing it is to preach that gospel. And yet, when we do, how can we sometimes not but feel that words are... So here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 20 and 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom... It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen.